section twenty six of lives of the queens of england volume five by agnes and elizabeth strickland this librivox recording is in the public domain mary chapter six part three king philip returned for a short time in march fifteen fifty seven for the purpose of forcing his queen into a war with france it is certain she had received every provocation from henry the second who had incited all the plots that had agitated england since her accession yet she was very loath to involve her kingdom in the expenses of a war which her finances were totally inadequate to support she however took the opportunity of pardoning most of the rebels that had been engaged in the late insurrection on condition of their joining the english quota of philip's army then mustering near calais lord bray was among the number which likewise comprised the surviving sons of the duke of northumberland the queen having restored their property as well as their freedom she raised money to equip her army by borrowing from the country gentlemen and citizens who had capital to spare small sums at the enormous interest of twelve per cent philip left england in the summer and the queen never saw him more his friend the prince of savoy won for him the battle of st quentin in august but this victory seemed an illustration of the irish adage of gaining a loss since the principal result was that the french got possession of calais a few months afterwards the recent visit of philip and the martial excitement around her had roused queen mary for a short time from the deadly torpor of disease and she became sufficiently convalescent to be occupied with a series of vexations not the least of these was the pertinacity with which philip the second insisted on forcing her sister elizabeth to give her hand to his friend the prince of savoy who was at this time the hero of the day it must be owned that if mary wished to disinherit or banish her sister it was strange that she encouraged her in her objections to every foreign match when philip urged arguments in behalf of his friend queen mary answered that she had consented to the match while she thought elizabeth would approve of it but that as she found her exceedingly adverse in consequence she could not force her into an unwilling marriage the queen added that she was certain that parliament would not suffer her sister to quit the kingdom a clear acknowledgment of elizabeth's position as second person in the realm this controversy produced an angry letter from philip in which he charged mary on her conscience and as she regarded the future welfare of her religion to bring this matter to bear this produced a singular letter from queen mary written in french it is worded in the self-denying and humble style conventional in epistles of the era but contains a distinct avowal of determination to act in regard to her sister's marriage only as her parliament should agree a principle which governed her in every act of her regal life although she has been made singly responsible for all the evil enacted by her parliaments as if she had been an autocrat who issued you cases expressive of her sole will queen mary to king philip monsieur i have received the letters from your highness by francisco the eighteenth instant humbly thanking you for the same especially as you are pleased to write that you took mine in good part which were indeed i assure your highness written with good intention and assuredly seeing that yours was written with the same i can say nothing more than to entreat your highness 
seeing that you think it right that i examine my conscience to discover whether it is founded in truth or not to name what persons your highness may think most proper to communicate with me on this affair and i will willingly listen to them sincerely whomsoever they may be nevertheless in my last letter to your highness i made an offer to agree to this marriage on this occasion provided i have the consent of this realm and so i will but without this consent i fear that neither your highness nor this realm will be well served on this occasion for your highness will remember that once i procured of myself an opportunity of listening to the friars of your highness but they then and alfonso propounded questions so obscure or irrelevant that to my simple understanding there was no comprehending them as for instance who was king in adam's days and said withal that i was bound to conclude this marriage by an article in my creed yet if he had not propounded things too difficult to be understood it was nevertheless impossible for him in so short a time to direct my conscience but one thing i promise your highness whomsoever you appoint will not find me obstinate or without reason i hope meantime your highness has written in the said letters that if a parliament shall go contrary your highness will impute the fault to me i beg in all humility that your highness will defer this matter till your return and then it will be manifest whether i am culpable or not otherwise i shall live in apprehension of your highness's displeasure which would be worse to me than death for i have already begun to taste too much to my regret truth to say in my simple judgment under the correction of your highness and seeing that the duke of savoy will be at this hour entered on the campaign unless a number of the council the nobility and kingdom are with your highness i cannot find by what means the matter can be properly treated nor how in my judgment even if my conscience were as completely satisfied as yours is this matter can be brought to the end which your highness desires without your presence wherefore monsieur in as humble wise as it is possible for me being your very loyal and very obedient wife which to be i confess myself justly obliged to be and in my opinion more than any other woman having such a husband as your highness is without speaking of the multitude of your kingdoms for that is not my principal motive i entreat your highness that we both pray to god and put our first confidence in him that we may meet and live together and that same god in whose hand is the direction of the hearts of kings will i hope without fail enlighten us in such manner that all at last shall tend to his glory and your satisfaction it is very plainly to be gathered from this letter that mary did not choose to use any indirect and illegal methods of influencing her parliament in favour of a marriage which was equally against the wishes of her sister and the kingdom this letter has been mentioned but surely by persons incapable of reading the original as an instance of the utter slavery of mary's disposition when in truth she makes in it a proper distinction between the tenderness of a wife and the duties of an english queen she will discuss the marriage with whomsoever her husband appoints but she will not be influenced to act against her regal integrity either by the mysticism or the bigotry of his friars she means to leave the whole to her parliament but deprecates his unreasonable displeasure in making her accountable when she has no right to control their acts 
she shows that nothing but trouble will follow any exertion of despotism in the affair yet if her husband wishes to influence her people he had better do it in person for she wants much to see him and she concludes with a prayer almost in the words retained in our liturgy that god in whose hand are the hearts of kings will direct this matter to his glory and when it is considered that the matter was providing elizabeth with a catholic spouse the whole tends to clear mary's character of some stains of bigotry the ambassador to whom philip confided the negotiation of this marriage was his beautiful and fascinating cousin christina of denmark like all the female descendants of isabella castile this young lady possessed great talents for government she was daughter of the deposed tyrant christian the second king of denmark and the virtuous isabel sister of the emperor charles v early inured to misfortune christina was reared in exile and became the ornament and darling of the imperial court she married the duke of lorraine and was at this time a widow philip the second was suspected of cherishing a passion for his lovely cousin who had great influence in his councils Christina was an active politician, but, to her credit be it spoken, she had an enthusiastic turn for negotiating peace. Some rumors of Philip's partiality for his cousin had reached the ears of Mary, who, either displeased with the embassy, or jealous of the ambassadress, gave her, though a near kinswoman of her own, anything but a gracious reception. She warned Elizabeth that if she did not wish to marry Savoy, she must keep close to Hatfield thus christina never saw her after the departure of the lovely diplomatiste it is said queen mary in an excess of jealousy cut her husband's picture to pieces with her own hand she had recently received a portrait of him to which a curious anecdote is annexed she had no great idea of the valor of her spouse but when she was told that for the first time in his life he had appeared in armor at the siege of st quentin she was smitten with an extreme desire to have his picture representing him in his warlike panoply philip very gallantly complied with her wish and sent her his portrait in armor all but the helmet for he did not consider it was consistent with etiquette that the head should be covered before the queen perhaps this was the picture on which she wreaked her vengeance mary was exasperated at the thought that her husband had deserted her and given to his cousin the confidence and influence she ought to have possessed her health again received a mortal shock from the attacks of chronic disease but like a self-deception like monomania she once more fancied that she was about to become a mother she made her will in the autumn of fifteen fifty seven under this impression in many clauses she alluded to a hope of offspring as futile as that she had formerly cherished michel the venetian ambassador who saw queen mary at the close of the year fifteen fifty seven will not allow that she was otherwise than an interesting-looking woman he thus minutely describes her person she is of low stature but has no deformity in any part of her person she is thin and delicate altogether unlike her father who was tall and strongly made or her mother who if not tall was massive her face is well formed and her features prove as well as her pictures that when younger she was not only good-looking but more than moderately handsome she would now be so saving some wrinkles caused more by sorrow than age 
she looks years older than she is and always appears very grave her eyes are piercing and inspire not only deference but even fear in those on whom she bends them yet she is near-sighted being unable to read or do anything else without her eyes being close to whatever she would peruse or well discern her voice powerful and high-pitched like that of a man so that when she speaks she is heard at some little distance this is a peculiarity often observed in females who sing well for a very fine voice in singing is often counterbalanced by most unpleasant tones in speech in short resumes michelle she may at her present age be considered very good-looking not only as a queen but a woman and ought never to be despised for ugliness such is the opinion of a contemporary ambassador whose national interest by no means led him to be her adulator rather the contrary the real portraits of mary are as much historical mysteries as her private character and conduct her portraits as a girl and young woman vary much from each other on account of the extreme fluctuations of her health her early portraits are often mistaken for those of lady jane grey to whom she bore in youth a strong family resemblance the immense size of the foreheads of these kinswomen in breadth as well as in height is extraordinary it is possible that the early erudition of both and their great capacity for learning is in some degree connected with this mighty development of frontal brain the enormous breadth of music in mary's forehead is well accounted for by her early proficiency in that science perhaps the musical development in queen mary's forehead is the largest that can be instanced in any female head her passion for music must have amounted to mania the youthful portraits of mary fully justify the continual praises we have been forced to quote from contemporary documents of the attractiveness of her person the portrait preferred by sir frederick madden is at burley house she has brown hair large open dark eyes full red lips and a good complexion in the possession of e wenman martin esq is a fine portrait by holbein representing mary as a girl of sixteen she is pretty excepting a slight degree of pettishness about the full red lips this expression is mentioned by sir frederick madden as pertaining to another pretty girlish portrait engraven by holar from the arundel collection in the holbein family group at hampton court she is a pleasing woman of twenty-eight indeed till after her marriage all portraiture represents her as a pleasing woman virtue's picture lately at strawberry hill gives her a pretty face exceedingly resembling the portrait in possession of mr e wenman martin but in some of the engravings from the celebrated burley picture her face is what the americans would call awful not in majesty but in ugliness she is in an original picture from which the granger society have engraved seated in state under a canopy dressed with royal magnificence in a gold cloth brocaded kirtle hanging rebreast sleeves and a jewelled hood her husband who is a young man of mean presence and carroty complexion stands near her canopy two little fair hounds are at her feet the room in which the royal pair are represented is some state chamber at whitehall which commanded a view of old st paul's for that cathedral is seen through an open window the date is fifteen fifty eight and it must have been painted during philip's last visit to england 
when the effects of dire disease were painfully apparent in the queen's visage a woman's portrait ought to be taken for futurity in the prime of life it would be hard even upon helen of troy to form our ideas of beauty when shaken by decay and verging to the tomb a series of the most dismal wet and cold seasons such as have been observed to occur in many instances in the middle of centuries plague the reign of mary famines and burning fevers succeeded this atmospheric irregularity and were regarded by many as judgments inflicted by god for the tortures of the protestants without considering that the insalubrity of the seasons were alike inimical to the health and comfort of the professors of each faith but gloom and superstitious excitement pervaded the whole population of england in the middle of the sixteenth century and every aberration from the common course of nature was viewed through their medium phosphoric exhalations of a luminous appearance have been much seen even on high grounds after the wet and unhealthy autumn of eighteen forty one and these have been viewed with some awe by the simple country people in these enlightened days but these same phenomena were observed at the latter end of the reign of mary and were fully believed to be the spectra of those horrid fires which had consumed the protestant martyrs these phosphoric meteors certainly boded no good to human health for general pestilence succeeded them stripes chronicler thus mentions these appearances apparitions of strange fires were seen by persons in many places in the neighbourhood of london as in finsbury fields moorfield near the windmill and at the dog-house by one dame annis clears and in many open places the natural result of hostilities with france was war with scotland which was then united under one royal family the scotch having made a desperate inbreak over the english border queen mary took the resolution of heading an army against them and she summoned the northern militia by a proclamation to that effect she had sufficient energy of mind for such an exploit had her sinking frame seconded her intentions the unexpected loss of calais with which the year commenced overwhelmed both the english and their queen with dismay and during the remainder of her miserable life she was harassed with schemes to regain that fragment of france the sole fruits of all the conquests of the plantagenets this town was maintained by the sovereigns of england at an expense equal to a fifth of the revenue it had often been the nursery of faction and several revolts which shook the english throne had been concocted within its walls yet it was dearly prized by the english as the key to france whenever they should possess a monarch sufficiently combative to renew the invasions of edward the third and henry the fifth a consummation the nation devoutly wished not having sufficient statistic wisdom to trace the long miseries of civil strife in the fifteenth century to the evil qualities induced in the population by such diabolical warfare from which they gained nothing but the expensive possession of calais it is little known that this town sent two representatives to the english house of commons the duke of guise captured the citadel of homs by a coup de main in the first days of january and before the end of the month calais itself was reunited to the french crown when do you english intend to visit france again was the taunting question asked by a french chevalier of an english veteran as lord grey was marching out of calais when your national crimes exceed ours 
was the admirable reply, and this prediction, recorded by the historic pen of Lord Bacon, has been fulfilled by the Duke of Wellington. But neither Mary nor her subjects could foresee a futurity so consolatory to national pride. The English insisted that King Philip should make no peace with France till Calais was restored, and this involved the Queen in such a mesh of disputes that she declared, she should die and if her breast was open calais would be found written on her heart her death was near at hand she had resided at richmond in the spring where she had a bad intermittent fever induced by the series of wet ungenial seasons prevalent throughout her reign before the jesuits discovered the specific of peruvian bark agues and other intermittents were the scourge of the country and often degenerated into the worst typhus fevers so little was understood of the nature of malaria that the queen removed to hampton court for change of air which is situated nearer the level of the thames than was richmond palace finding she grew worse she removed from thence to st james's which has the most marshy site that london could offer here however the fever somewhat abated but her spirits were oppressed with extreme melancholy at the tidings of the death of her kinsman charles v which occurred in September 1558. While the queen lay very sick and ill, persons were punished with the pillory for falsely reporting that she had expired. It is evident her unfortunate subjects were treated with increased cruelty by the council, who directed the religious persecution which raged in the land. A poor woman named Alice Driver was burnt to death for heresy. She had a short time previously been condemned by Sir Clement Hyman, a judge more clement in name than nature to have her ears cut off for railing on her majesty and calling her jezebel there is a strong contrast between these horrid sentences and that inflicted on an expert scold at bedford who for the same offence was when mary presided over her council condemned for railing against her majesty to the ancient constitutional punishment of the cucking stool King Philip did not visit England, but sent the Count de Feria, with a message and ring to his dying wife. Feria was likewise empowered to confer with the English Parliament. The dispatches of this ambassador contain some curious particulars. He found Parliament very uneasy at the loss of Calais, extremely averse to imposing heavy taxes, for the purpose of regaining it, and, above all things, unwilling to break the alliance with Flanders, which it was affirmed was indispensable since the union of france and scotland king philip advised queen mary to take some steps for the proper recognition of elizabeth as her successor a proposition which mary says feria greeted with great satisfaction the queen likewise sent her jewels to her sister by the countess de feria formerly jane dormer to these by king philip's orders was added a very precious casket of gems he had left at st james's palace which he knew elizabeth particularly admired the queen when she sent the jewels charged her sister to pay all the debts she had contracted on privy seals and to keep religion as she found it both which injunctions the countess de feria affirmed elizabeth swore to regard thus it is evident that mary was on good terms with her sister when she lay on her deathbed cardinal pole was dying of the same intermittent fever as his royal cousin it was doubtful which would expire first and messages hourly passed between these early friends 
the whole court had deserted mary's palace since her recognition of elizabeth as her successor and were seen passing and repassing on the road to hatfield of this desertion the queen never complained perhaps she thought it natural and she had devoted friends round her who paid her requisite attention but elizabeth often recalled it with horror when pressed to name a successor the hand of death was on the queen throughout the sixteenth of november but her previous sufferings had blunted the usual agonies of dissolution for she was composed and even cheerful between four and five in the morning of november seventeenth after receiving extreme unction at her desire mass was celebrated in her chamber at the elevation of the host she raised her eyes to heaven and at the benediction bowed her head and expired these particulars of the last moments of queen mary were given by an eye-witness white bishop of winchester in her funeral sermon cardinal pole survived her being informed of her departure he expressed the greatest satisfaction at the prospect of his speedy dissolution which actually took place within two days the deceased queen was embalmed and then removed from the chamber in which she expired into the chapel of st james's palace on the evening of the tenth of december where she laid in state with the usual watch of ladies it was the custom of the body of an english sovereign to be buried in royal array but mary had earnestly entreated that no semblance of the crown which had pressed so heavily on her brow in life might encumber her corpse in death she requested that she might be interred in the habit of a poor religious letty is the only historian who records this request but it is more probable that mary made it than it was fulfilled her funeral took place on the thirteenth of the same month and it proves how completely the gothic etiquette followed at such ceremonials recognized alone the warlike and masculine character in a sovereign for our first queen regnet's helmet sword targe and body armor were carried before her corpse and a stranger in the country trusting only the eye would have supposed the english were attending the burial of a king the procession set out from the palace of st james where she died a herald who was an eye-witness of the scene thus describes it so up the highway went the foremost standard the falcon and the heart then came a great company of mourners then another goodly standard of the lion and the falcon followed by king philip's servants riding two and two then the third standard with the white greyhound and falcon the marquess of winchester bore the banner of england on horseback chester herald the helm the crest and the mantle norrie the target with the crown of england and the order of the garter clarence Hugh, the sword and mr garter king at arms her coat armour all on horseback the somerset lancaster windsor and york heralds carried four white banners of saints embossed in fine gold then came the corpse in a chariot with an exact image representing queen mary dressed in crimson velvet with many gold rings on the hands the pall over the coffin was black cloth of gold intersected by a cross of cloth of silver the body was followed by the chief mourners the queen's ladies came after on horseback but their black trains were long enough to sweep after them on the ground before the corpse and following after came processions of monks mourning their own fate as well as the death of mary such was the procession which passed by charing cross and arrived at the great door of westminster abbey where every one alighted from their horses 
there waited gentlemen ready to take the queen out of her chariot the earls and lords went before her towards the hearse which it must always be remembered was erected in the abbey near or over the grave the effigy above mentioned was carried between men of worship at the great door of the abbey four bishops and abbot feckenham in pontificalibus met this procession and sensed the corpse the royal corpse was placed on the hearse and watched the livelong night on december thirteenth the hundred poor men in good black gowns and hoods bearing long torches with the queen's guard in black coats bearing staff torches stood round the hearse that night and wax chandlers were in attendance to supply any torches that burnt out the next morning december fourteenth was the queen's mass and all the mourners offered and the queen's body armor her sword her helmet her target her banner of arms and three standards were all offered her heralds standing round her coffin the bishop of winchester preached a most remarkable funeral sermon for the deceased queen being often interrupted by his tears the historical circumstances attending this oration prove that queen elizabeth was present at the ceremony the herald who is our guide for this curious ceremonial proceeds to say then her grace was carried up to that chapel king henry the seventh built attended by mitred bishops when the heralds break their staffs and flung them into her grave all the people plucked down the hangings and the armorial bearings round about the abbey and every one tore him a piece as large as he could catch it what a scene of uproar and confusion must have concluded the last state funeral rites of the roman catholic church in england however the bishop of york in the midst of the hurly-burly proclaimed the collation and as soon as he finished the bishops abbot feckenham the lords ladies and knights went into the abbey to dinner mary was interred on the north side of henry the seventh's chapel no memorial exists of her saving her participation in the following inscription inscribed on two small black tablets erected by the order of james i which point out the spots where her body reposes with that of her sister queen elizabeth regno consortis et urnum hic abdormimus elisabetta et maria sores in spe resurrectionis elizabeth dispatched lord cobham on the twenty-third of november to philip the second who was then in flanders with the news of her sister's demise mary's widower celebrated her requiem in the cathedral of brussels simultaneously with her burial and on the same day by a singular coincidence the like service was performed for his father charles v and for his aunt the queen of hungary so busy had death been in the royal family of spain in her testament mary styled herself queen of england spain france both sicilies jerusalem and ireland defender of the faith archduchess of austria duchess of burgundy milan and brabant countess of Habsburg, flanders and tyrol she named her husband as principal executor and her cousin cardinal pole as the acting executor to whom she left one thousand pounds she considered that she had a right to dispose of by will the church property she found still unalienated by her father and brother the income arising from it she seems to have devoted to the maintenance of the most miserable of the poor with which the country abounded and the capital which she might have granted to hungry courtiers during her lifetime 
she was exceedingly anxious should return to purposes of charity and she seemed to think that as she had not dissipated it in life she had a right to direct its destination after death a point that would admit some controversy the principal use to which she devoted this fund was so noble that it seems grievous her will remained altogether a dead letter and forasmuch she says as there is no house or hospital specially ordained and provided for the relief and help of poor and old soldiers namely of such as have been hurt or maimed in the wars and service of this realm to which we think both honour conscience and charity willeth should be provided and therefore my mind and will is that my executors shall as shortly as they may after my decease provide some convenient house within or nigh the suburbs of the city of london the which house i would have founded and created being governed with one master and two brethren and i will that this hospital be endowed with manors lands and possessions to the value of four hundred marks yearly she recommended that good rules and ordinances should be made for the hospital by her executors and specially i would have them respect the relief succor and help of poor impotent and aged soldiers chiefly those that be fallen into extreme poverty and have no pension or other living she devotes her jewels and every kind of property to the payment of her debts by privy seal and the debts of her father and brother which seem to have hung very heavily on her mind she devotes about two thousand pounds in all to the refoundation of the convents of sion sheen and the observance for works of charity and relief of the poor and the support of the savoy hospital there is not a penny bestowed on any devotional observance unconnected with active charity neither image lamp nor pilgrimage are mentioned and here the will is in coincidence with her privy purse expenses one passage in it is extremely interesting which is her desire to be united in death with her dearly beloved and virtuous mother queen catherine and further i will she says that the body of my most dear and well-beloved mother of happy memory queen catherine which lieth now buried at peterborough shall within as short a time as conveniently it may after my burial be removed brought and laid nigh the place of my sepulchre in which place i will my executors cause to be made honourable tombs for a decent memory of us this it is scarcely needful to say was never done and both mother and daughter repose without such honourable tombs when however the catholic altars in westminster abbey that in henry the seventh chapel and the high altar were torn down in the reign of elizabeth the consecrated stones were carried and laid on queen mary's grave queen mary left to philip to keep for a memory of her one jewel being a table diamond which the emperor's majesty his and my most honourable father sent unto me by count de egmont at the insurance or betrothal of my said lord and husband also one other table diamond which his majesty sent unto me by the marquis de los naves and the collar of gold set with nine diamonds which his majesty gave me the epiphany after our marriage also the ruby now set in a gold ring which his highness sent me by the count de feria she very anxiously provided in her will for her state debts raised for the support of the war on her privy seals bearing the enormous interest of from twelve to twenty per cent these would have been blended with the national debt in modern times 
but mary like other sovereigns of her era treated them wholly as her personal obligations and at the same time considered the goods of the state as her private property for she pointed out in her will that she left ships arms and crown jewels far beyond the value of these debts on which she clearly implied that the state creditors had just claim an extraordinary feature in the history of finance and perhaps not wholly undeserving the attention of our fund holders mary built the public schools in the university of oxford but in the style more suited to her poverty than love of learning they were afterwards taken down and rebuilt yet the university remembers her in the list of its benefactors she likewise granted a mansion on bennett's hill near st paul's to the learned body of heralds and it is to this day their college however fatally mistaken either mary or her ministers were in the principles of religious government her last testament proves that she was not insensible to the prosperity of her country the codicil of her will added after her strange mania of maternity was dispelled by the near approach of death provides for the amicable continuance of the alliance between england and flanders that great desideratum which had been a national object since the alliance of william the conqueror with matilda of flanders mary in her codicil thus solemnly addressed her husband and her successor and for the ancient amity's sake that hath always been between our noble progenitors and between this my realm and the low countries whereof his majesty king philip is now inheritor as god shall reward him i hope among the elect servants of god i pray that it may please his majesty to show himself as a father in his care or as a brother of this realm in his love and favor and as a most assured and undoubted friend in his power and strength to my heir and successor with this sentence concludes a biography which presented a task at once the most difficult and dangerous that could fall to the lot of any englishwoman to perform it was difficult because almost the whole of the rich mass of documents lately edited by our great historical antiquaries madden and titler are in direct opposition to the popular ideas of the character of our first queen regnant and dangerous because the desire of recording truth may be mistaken for a wish to extenuate cruelty in religious and civil government a narrative composed of facts drawn from contemporaneous authorities is here presented to the public as little blended with comment as possible readers will draw their own inferences and when their object is historical information rather than controversy these are really more valuable than the most elaborate essay that the pride of authorship can produce if such inferences should induce an opinion that our first queen regnant mingled some of the virtues of her sex with those dark and stormy passions which have been attributed to her there will but be fulfilled the motto which in a mournfully prophetic spirit she adopted for herself that time unveils truth end of section twenty six end of lives of the queens of england volume five by agnes and elizabeth strickland